All right. Hey, listeners, this is William Sterling, and we are back with the Killer Mediums podcast. Uh, hiatus is over. Uh, we are here to talk again about all of your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. And today we have the esteemed guest, Clay McLeod Chapman. I am so fucking excited for this one. Um, and we are talking about horror that is made to be heard, the audio horror for your ear holes. Um, but with all that said, here we go. Let's get spooky. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Clay, how the hell are you doing tonight? <laughs> well, with an intro like that, uh, I'm awesome. Esteemed. <laughs> Come on. More like steamy. Steaming. <laughs> also that. They're not. Stor insane. Dark and steaming. Dark and stormy. <laughs> I'm not drinking, I swear. Um, <laughs> what was the hiatus? Where did you go? Oh, um, so November rolled around and I had been just pushing and pushing and pushing with the podcast for a long time. Mm -hmm. um and i had a tbr pile behind me that was growing <laughs> and threatening to break a few floorboards so i needed to put the show on pause for a minute go out and just read some stuff for me and i did and i feel rejuvenated and here we are podcasting's tough it's it's hard right yeah is it fun do you enjoy it do you love oh, it? oh it's so much fun i mean i'm talking to you right now which is just like <laughs> mind-blowing to me Come but, on, set the bar. You gotta go lower. You gotta go like, please do not. We can't do this. If if I catch a whiff <laughs> of esteem, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> fart in the wind or something. I don't know, man. Come no, on, no, no, no. The, the altar has been built, and you are upon it. Um, <laughs> the TV in the least altar. in the least sacrificially way possible. Um, but let's get the focus off me. Let's get it on you. In case any of our guests are not familiar with you, can you give us just a brief idea of who you are, what you do in the horror community? That's got to be like 99.9% .9 of the people out there in the world. Like, <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Clay. I um, I was born in Roanoke, Virginia. I was raised in Richmond, Virginia. I am a Virginia boy, but I live in New York now. I've lived in New York for 20-ish years. I have a family. I have... Uh, what do I do? I, I, like, I like to tell stories. Like stories. We're here to tell stories, right? <laughs> like it's oh, just yeah. fun. I like spooky stuff. I, I like... I don't know. I was like... I was one of those guys who like, you know, was watching spooky stuff, horror movies. Like I found Halloween and that led to amazing, you know, just like I just started chasing that dragon at an early age. I was like of the VHS <laughs> era. So like I I had the video store, the local mom and pop shop that I would like go yeah. to. Um, I would just watch spooky movies. I love spooky movies. And that kind of dovetailed into reading spooky books and I failed everything growing up. So it, it led to this kind of like just finding 
uh, I, I love to read and I love to, I, I, I found that like, I, I think I found that I love to write out of a kind of default of needing to, you know, get some extra credit in an English class. And uh, my teacher struck a deal with me where she said, if I entered a writing local writing contest, I could get some, you know, extra cred. And uh, yeah, it like, I, I ended up winning that contest <laughs> and it was like, Oh wow. Like maybe, maybe there's something here. Um, and that was just the, I like, it was just downhill from there. Like that was like, I was a kid and I just, the, the, the level of, um, what am I going to say? I, the, the level of engagement that I found with my writing, I just, I, I glommed onto that and just kept with it at the default, at the fault and detriment of everything else. Um, I don't know what else to do with myself. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm a fuck up and everything else in life, but I love, you know, spinning spooky yarns. <laughs> well, did I, I do I, it right? Did I answer the question? Was, there was an did. answer in there somewhere. I, I wanted to go, I wanted to go far. I, I, I like, I need this to be like cathartic in some way. So like, I'm trying to find the underlining emotion here and I'm trying to let it go. So I'm using this as an exorcism on air <laughs> well as somebody that is benefiting from your exorcism thank you uh, <laughs> also you are you are just feeding this theory that i've had for the longest time that like all creative people had that one english teacher at one point yeah i, I feel like everybody's got that one in their in their background that they're like oh yeah that was mr Kling. or that was miss timmons right <laughs> yeah no totally i, I might here. even had like three or four of those english teachers I, I i i i feel like life just gets like like we're all pinballs right and like we just get kind of bounced and flipped and flopped around and it takes the kind of I don't know if it's coercion or the nudging of of teachers, but like, yeah. Um Susan B. Royer, sixth grade English. Um, I think we hopped to Peter Ramus, ninth grade English, uh, Catherine Bogger, uh, high school theater teacher. <laughs> um, on and on and on. Like, I mean, it just keeps going. Like, like every like I I feel like there are just certain teachers that I you know, like, it's like one of them just introduces you to a book, like, Hey man, you should read this book. And I'll be like, Oh my God, like that book changed my life. Um, like, you know, I, I can remember the first time I read Cormac McCarthy and it's because my ninth grade English teacher assigned, assigned him to me. And like that, that like, you know, who does that? Like, that's, that's amazing. And like, yeah. Mine was 10th grade and he handed me the road. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Isn't that amazing heard... though? It was so good. He just knew I was into like slightly morose shit. So he yeah. was like, I, boy, do I have something for you? And he did. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, I mean, I'll stand by education as being, I mean, you're like the gatekeepers to uh, life. Like, like imagine just being in a high school and like, you're just another brick in the wall it's just total status quo. You're just lockstepping with every other student, but they're these, these gatekeepers, these intellectual gatekeepers that like can look and if they see you and they acknowledge you, they can be like, I understand that you may not click with X, but 
if I offer you why, I can't grade you on why, I can't <laughs> assign you why, why is not a part of what, you know, there's no test for why, but I'm going to give you why under the desk, under the table, and it's going like, check it out, see what you, you see if you vibe. And if you vibe, if you are one of those people who like just vibes off of those, those books, I, I mean, like it's, it's life-changing and you need those teachers. Like I needed those teachers. I still need those teachers. I need people to tell me what to read or what bands to listen to or what movies to watch. Like I need, I need to be educated and uh, yeah. So educate me. What do I need? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like podcasters and me excluded, but podcasters have kind of filled that void for me. Like I can turn on Slay House Lit Bits and Trevor's introducing me to new authors that I just love. Yeah. Uh, and talking scared with Neil, like so yeah. many people have have the keys to these great gates. How is Slay House? Oh, it's amazing. Um, yeah. it, Trevor Williamson. I have a weird connection with Trevor Williamson because I'm on a Red Wall read along podcast with him. So like I, I he's very near and dear to my heart, yeah. um, along with all of those weird little mice. But um, yeah, he does interviews that are a thousand times better than mine if you are wasting your time with this podcast and you haven't checked out slayhouse lit bits turn this off go there come back we'll be here <laughs> we're not going anywhere this is on the internet forever now <laughs> um but let's get into it let's let's hit the meat of what we're what we're here for so i kind of got inspired to pitch this episode to you with speaking of richmond uh, I came up for Halloween Hangover 2 this year. I, I, I got to, <laughs> right. I had the joy of listening to you read or perform might be a better word for it. Perform baby carrots in one of your reading windows. And it was just this awe-inspiring moment of artistry. Like I have been to readings before with with authors reading from their short stories and giving giving these little um performances nothing like what you've done though and that is not a knock at all on any other authors that i've heard read your approach was just different <laughs> and then i went back and i started putting pieces together and i remembered that when i listened to quiet part loud you were attached to that also. And there's just all these wheels turning in my head, like, holy shit, this guy has some handle on audible performances. <laughs> and if if the whole point of my podcast is talking about horror in different mediums, this is a medium we haven't hit yet. He's the dude. I've got to get him on here and I've got to talk to him about this. So I wanted to bring you on board today to talk about, uh, one, you are a phenomenal writer. Ghost Eaters, amazing. I haven't gotten to what kind of mother yet because I have a slight aversion to child trauma. Um, yeah, and it, it, it yeah. feels like that one goes down yeah, that road. So I'm, yeah. I'm staying away from that one. But anyhow, I wanted to talk to you just kind of about the process when you are writing something that you know is intended for textual form versus when you're writing a story that is geared towards being heard instead of just read. Um, do you have any different tips and tricks for approaching those? Are there things that you find yourself intentionally trying to do more of when you're writing for Audible versus for scripts? 
I don't know. Take me on your journey a little bit here. <laughs> oh man. I mean, I'm thinking a lot of different things all at once now. And um, thank you. Thank you know that the Halloween hangover, uh, you know, shout out to James and Tiffany. Like that was amazing. Um, they're the best. And that event is the best. Um, I don't know. Like I, I'll I'll admit I'm going to cop to something and I'm going to do it with a little bit of neuroses up front. And that's to say that like I was a bit of a theater kid growing up and I found that like my my own kind of personal hamminess had a, a home in front of people that I could like mug and be goofy and stupid and just, you know, draw attention to myself as, as a kid. Um <laughs> And uh, I, I think that like, like there was a, like there was a hot minute where I was going to try to be an actor, not really, but like I went to a theater conservatory. Uh, I like dropped out of high school early and moved down to North Carolina where there's this amazing program um, at North Carolina school of the arts for, for, you know, like it's a, it's a, university it's it's like a it's an art like a art conservatory for like dance and music and film and theater and like just visual arts like it's, everything is there and i went there for theater and they had a program where you could leave your high school and go there technically to finish up whatever you were doing what you needed to kind of get your diploma your high school diploma but go for theater uh, and start taking their kind of theater courses it was like a weird kind of like gap like strange nebulous thing and I went there and I learned really quickly that I'm not an actor I couldn't I'm not I don't have I had a I had this one teacher named Tanya Belov god bless her and like I remember doing this one exercise where she was like um you you basically have to kind of like improvise a scene with nothing um like you know like imagine you come home to your apartment at night and there's someone like trying to break into your apartment and like you like it has to be like 15 minutes long and like i had like created this elaborate like i was the stalker and i i was obsessed with uh jennifer jason lee and like just like all these like things and like so when the stalker came after me i was like it was an awful it was like a like a, like a complete flame out flare out moment on stage and you know my acting professor was like clay she's this like like staunch like like kind of rush like russian kind of like like method teacher like stanislavski teacher and she was like clay you uh you will not be an actor. <laughs> you want you want to be in this business. You have to go through the back door. Find any other door than the front door. And I, it like was heartbreaking. It was like the the worst news. Like it was like like kind of spirits crush moment. But she was totally right. And um, I uh, I learned that for me, like I never wanted to perform in anybody else's stuff. I mean, I do. I actually like doing it. But like I. I realized that what was most valuable to me was kind of telling these goofball stories, like telling my own stories and um, pieces like baby carrots. And uh, it's all, that's all of a roundabout way of saying that like I, the only way that I could get people to pay attention to me and the things that I wanted to, to like the stories I wanted to tell and whether that was me performing them or reading them or, you know, like giving them to someone else to read. Like, it, like I just, 
they just had to be like, I was the foot soldier. I was the one like, I, like, I want you to listen to me, read this story. I have to deliver it to you. I am in the trenches. Like, let me be the, the, the person to kind of like, uh, like, like I, I have to be the messenger. And, um, that, that led to like writing first person narrative. Like I remember reading a lot of like, call me Ishmael, a lot of, you know, a lot like recognizing that first person narrative is this beautiful thing that in fiction where you get an actor behind it, you know, a short story or a novel and it kind of it becomes shaken big theater. And I started doing this weird thing kind of really early on in high school, college, um, where like I was writing these short stories, these first person narratives, and all of these first person narratives were, were in essence, uh, they were stories, they were short stories, but I could perform them on stage and, you know, in essence, kind of deliver them to an audience under the guise of being theater, when in fact, the whole time for me, I thought of them as short stories. And so when I got my first collection of like, like for years, I just would do these stupid kind of off, off, off Broadway, like shows and basement spaces here in New York uh, to like 20, 10, five people, um, you know, friends. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, it would just be me kind of performing these, these stories that I had written. And I uh, like somewhere along the way, I had convinced a agent, a lit agent to kind of take the stories seriously as like short stories. Um, and it was like such a nexus point, like a kind of like pivotal, like intersection for me where like I, I suddenly was able to convince the publishing people that these were short stories. Uh, and my first book was a, a collection of, of 20 of these, these kind of ready-made monologues that were, they were, it was fiction um, to them. And it was the same text. It was the same, like the 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 material did not change between what was performed on stage and what was uh, read, what was published. And uh, that was really important to me that like there's no stage directions, there's no like a script and a short story. Like they're just completely like whatever I needed an actor to to know about a character in one of these monologues had to be baked into the text itself so there would never be like you know clay a you know balding white caucasian male in his mid-40s is like you know like none of that is in like there's no stage direction it's all like it has to be in in the text itself in the story and um yeah so that is an all that is a long-winded way to say like what you saw at ha halloween hangover was just you know, two, like going on almost three decades of writing these, like these asinine monologues and like convincing the publishing people that they're short stories. And then whenever I have a chance or an audience or a venue, I can just do it as, as if they're monologues. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like that's, that's all that crap. That's that, like, and honestly, like that, like, from high school on, like, that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to write short stories that were really weird and kind of creepy, maybe a little hoary, but like, they were just, just like, 
weird voices from weird people kind of telling their side of their own personal life histories, like their stories. And uh, then, then I could, you, you could read them to yourself and have that experience. But there's this duality to text where like the text itself can come alive when anyone gets behind it. It doesn't have to be me. It can just be anybody. Like it's like any, you don't even have to be an actor. Like just start reading it out loud. And it's suddenly like the character comes to life. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's in the text. It's in the words itself. Um, but that all said, and I'm sorry, I'm really mouthing off here. Forgive me. Um, the thing that I'm really scared of now, as I like get older, is that like I'm gonna die. Like I'm, I'm like out the door. Like I'm like one, like you know, pint of Ben and Jerry's away from like not being here. And it, you know, when when people are like, oh, I saw, I saw you do that thing. It's so good. It's like funny. You know, like ah, baby carrots. And it's like yeah. And it's like I, I just, I'm the thing that I'm worried about is that I just want to make sure that like I have to deliver the payload which is the stories themselves so that people will read the goddamn things or take me with them because uh I won't be here forever and if it and if it if it dies with me that's gonna suck because I I want to believe that there's a certain kind of durability to the stories themselves and that's why like I have to fucking be a better writer like i have to i have to write good stories because if the stories themselves aren't good you can put lipstick on that pig all you want and like do all the bells and whistles and all the performance kind of tricks that you can and if it's still a shitty story it's it's gonna be a shitty story so i am i am that is that is the that is the kind of uh the, the 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 challenge that I am personally facing here and now in this day and age of my professional career. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, so oh, there are so many follow up questions, so many so many uh, trails I can chase on that. Um, let me first bring it back to so you said you had a few decades worth of writing these short stories, performing them on stages. I imagine there had to, uh, th- there was probably a lot of growth as a writer over that time period. Um, maybe the the stories that you were performing at the beginning looked different than the stories that you were turning out and performing at the end. Um, are there any things that you learned along the way by doing all of those performances? things that you found that audiences really responded well to things that you tried that maybe audiences didn't respond well to uh, any, any specific stuff from a story craft perspective that you could advise I mean, the next generation about. <laughs> the next generation. Um, <laughs> holy shit. Um, I don't, I mean like, I I think this is going to be the party line and no matter what else I say, it's going to always boil down to if the story itself kicks ass, that's going to be like, just be a good writer, write a good story. Like, like whatever that trick, like the trick I've learned is if it's a good story, that's that start there, (laughs) you know, don't write a shitty story and perform it amazingly. Like write, write an amazing story and then 
do whatever the fuck you want with the, <laughs> like, you know, like the reading of like, like, and yeah, like, I feel like there's the avenue we can go down of like, you know, how to, you know, present your material to a live audience. Like that's that we can talk about like those tricks of the trade, but like at the end of the day, like if it's, if you wrote a good story, like an amazing story, people are going to respond to that. Um, and that, that to me is like, like, I need to learn that. I need to take that, that medicine because like, like I, I want to write good stories and I want them to land with readers. Um, whether that's live or someone cracking open one of these books. And I, I think that all said to answer your question beyond, beyond the right, the good story. Like I, I find that there's like, I'm, I'm going to take craft off the table. I'm not going to talk about like the, the writing of the stories itself, but like, engagement with an audience actually goes really far. Like, I, I think the thing that I personally respond to when I go to readings or went to readings would always be, oh, I'm watching something and I'm respond like, like I'm going to this amazing event with this amazing writer and I'm really excited and I, I can't wait. And they, they come on stage they do their thing and, and say their hellos and their greetings. And then all of a sudden they uh, bury their face in their sheets, their papers and their, you know, and then it's, it, it's like, like, like it, yeah. the drone and the, or the, the poetry voice, it's starting off and it goes up and down. Like, you know, like there's like it, like, like I think for me, I tune out as soon as I feel like, I mean, I, I think this is this is the age old argument. Reading readings tend to be boring. They tend to be dry, kind of st like you know, starchy affairs, um, unless there's some level of engagement. And and I and I feel like I am not personally precious with my material. Where like I oh like okay just because you saw the baby carrots story, like I was fumbling and flipping and flopping through that thing like you wouldn't believe if someone had the actual story in their hands and was like reading along with me, they'd be like oh my god this guy is like <laughs> messing this shit up, like so that <laughs> that actually goes along with I was sitting next to. Who was it I was talking to you about this? I think it was Todd Kiesling. I think it was me uh -huh. and Todd Kiesling sitting next to each other. Um, but he was watching you do the reading and like, he's not reading that. He's got the papers in his hand, but I don't think he's looked at them a single time. He's just doing yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you do you think that, uh, kind of like you said, getting your face out of the pages and like being able to make those connections with readers, is that something that you... Well, clearly, because you're talking about it now, I was about to ask something stupid. Is that something you do intentionally? <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> no. Well, I, this, this kind of goes off course from uh, mm. reading and writing and fiction. But like with theater, the thing that I love about theater is the level of engagement with an audience that like I, I'm, I'm really kind of selfish when it comes to theater because, or, or when I'm performing, it's because I'm doing it not for the audience, I'm doing it for me. Like I need to connect with people. And 
even if it's one-sided to the extent that like I'm the one delivering the payload, like I'm the one delivering the story, like I'm the one who has the text, the script, the words, the lines, like, like I, there is still a conversation going on. And that conversation is going on between me, the performer and you, the audience member. And you are, if you are engaging you are, you, who knows what you're doing? You're laughing, you're crying, you're falling asleep, you're bored, you're checking your watch, your phone. Like, like any, like any kind of thing that you do during a performance is, is communicating to me. And that's because what I love to do in theater is kind of take the fourth wall, which is that invisible barrier that is supposed to separate the audience and the performer. And I love to kind of nudge it like just push it back so that it's it's on the other side of the audience. Like the audience is now in the show. They are a part of the show and they're they, like, like theater exists only in its kind of dynamic between audience and performer. Like it only exists uh, when there's an audience. Like, like right now there's a showing of Aquaman going on and it just doesn't, need us like it's going to happen whether we're there or not but theater needs you and and i think in these readings that i like to do these these kind of performances of these stories what i hope i mean i'm like none of that they'll never be the same i could do baby carrots or any of these stories a million gazillion times but they're it's always going to be different on a granular level because the audience is different the 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 silent scene partner the 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 other half of that dynamic that relationship is different and they're bringing something new to the table that i have to respond to as a performer um so yeah that's all theatery stuff though i feel like i'm sabotaging this conversation about reading and you know no yeah. this is great um however I am going to now pull the rug out from under you violently, and yeah. I am going to introduce a quiet part loud to this conversation. So we've been talking a lot about engagement with the audience and being able to respond and react to them. So now let's talk about this, this piece that you uh, helped create, um, where you just abjectly do not get to see the audience's reaction to it. There, there is not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of feedback for you. And yet, um, as I listen to this thing, it is still engrossing. Um, there are so many little tricks and levers that it pulls that make me feel, or that made me feel, uh, like I was in it. Um, yeah. Like this thing was happening all around me, thanks to that stupid speaker system I have. <laughs> um, it, I, I was drowning in Rick Egan for a couple of minutes there. Um, yeah. So pivoting a little bit, um, could you explain to any listeners that are not familiar with it, what Quiet Part Loud was, um, kind of what your role was in the creation of this? And yeah, just, just yeah. kind of set the stage here some to, to steal a theater term. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, okay. So quiet part loud is a narrative podcast 
scripted podcast. Uh, 12 episodes, if I'm remembering correctly, um, came out in November of 2022. Oh my God, it's been over a year now. That's insane. Um, it is a production uh, from, it's a monkey paw production. Uh, along with Spotify. Spotify uh, distributed it, produced it, put it out with Gimlet Media. So like right off the bat, like Gimlet and Monkey Paw with Spotify's backing. Like like you talk about like all the bells and whistles and the immersion that you felt like that is like we in essence had a blank check. I was one of the co-writers. There were two writers on this. It was me and another fellow by the name of Mac Rogers, who is amazing. And who, if you really want to talk to like a, like a, like a hardcore, like amazing uh, podcast writer, Mac is phenomenal. You should totally have him on the show. And he's a great friend. And I will introduce you <laughs> if you're interested because he's i mean like he's phenomenal i mean like i i feel like there's so many different stories to talk about with with quiet part loud but it was the best experience because we had carte blanche i mean like like monkey paws kind of mandate i mean there were there were a few different mandates but one of the primary mandates was like we want a massive godzilla style big budget movie distilled into a podcast. So like nothing, like you go to town, like no stone unturned. <laughs> and there was like, there's definitely like, you know, it was M Monkey Paw's first podcast. So when Gimlet had to come in and they're like, okay, like we get like <laughs> where you're coming from with saying, saying that, but now we have to do it. We have to implement it. So like Mac and I could write whatever, you know, car explosions and, you know, monsters and any anything we wanted. But then someone had to articulate that. Uh, so we, you know, it was it was the best experience because we were ultimately given the kind of free reign to kind of create this massive, massive thing. Like if this I, I don't know if it's fair to even do this and I and I don't want to talk out of school, but like if you if you were to think of this as like a movie, like it would be a hundred, two hundred million dollar, <laughs> like this the yeah. like the scope and scale of it. But like it doesn't matter because it's a podcast. So like you're you're hearing these things, you're not seeing them, and like all the explosions and car chases and monsters, like they they don't exist on screen. They exist in your ears, and that's that's a beautiful thing because it's a lot cheaper for everyone but Gimlet because they have to make <laughs> make the sounds <laughs> from scratch. Yeah, I, it, and I, I like hearing that Monkey Paw gave you that directive because that's how it feels, um, mm -hmm. especially by, side note, full spoiler podcast. If you are listening to this and you have not uh, listened to Quiet Part Loud and you would like to with fresh ears, please leave. Um, <laughs> oh, wait, three, two, one. Okay, diving into the spoilers now. Episode 12. Um when Rick um, is is like sucking the evil into his own head and trying to leave <laughs> it in the desert and it's railing against him, just going yeah. fucking berserk. Yeah. I don't know if I can compare that to anything 
um, auditorily other than just like being the, being able to hear the alien and know like all of the <laughs> awe and the insanity of yeah. just seeing that thing unfurl for the first time. And Oh my yeah. God, that's fucking gorgeous. It was and the same have... thing, but harrowing this time. It was like, this is terrible. I need yeah. to turn this off. I was driving. I, I vividly remember this. I was driving and like, I should probably wow. pull over because like, I'm very disoriented right now. And <laughs> I can't, I can't do this for more than about 10 seconds. Oh, good. Good. We can breathe again for a second. He cut but off I mean, his tongue. We're, we're good. <laughs> how amazing is it though, that that's, that's Tracy Letts and Taryn Killen. I mean, like Tracy Letts. I mean, if you're like a theater person, like, you know, him as, you know, Bug, Killer Joe, August Osage County, like, you know, like award winning, like a highly esteemed playwright who has had this amazing and kind of near eclipsing side career as an actor, phenomenal actor. And like we got him to do Rick Egan, this this vitriolic kind of like shock jock you know alex jonesy you know you know kind of like like not like a personal a radio personality who kind of makes a deal with the devil and um that last that that episode 12 like there's a moment where i personally was like listening to it and i was like oh my god we have <laughs> tracy let's cutting up like severing his own tongue and like <laughs> how does like i've never been in a position to actually ask him this but it's like i have to imagine him doing this he's like oh my god like what the what? you know like i won <laughs> i won so many awards and i'm doing this i have to like pretend like i'm cutting off my own tongue and but i will you know i'll vouch that i i i that was my idea I, we had to cut we had to cut rick's tongue off. <laughs> it, it felt like a very you moment and that uh, kind of going back to when i was when i was kind of setting up this portion of the episode like so much of you still bleeds through this even though it's a, a totally different sort of a venue than i saw you in the first time like i i could recognize kind of that as a trademark of yours of this like <laughs> very very fucked up gut punch right here near the end like oh oh don't cut out the don't cut out the tongue oh no don't eat the baby carrot like oh don't do the <laughs> no I, I mean we we were in a writer's room of two i mean it was just mac and me and uh you know monkey it was an, it was a really interesting process because it would be uh we were kind of sheltered by monkey paw. Like we, we ultimately kind of like the first, like no lie, Mac and I started March of 2020. Uh, so like right when COVID, like when lockdown began, we began. Um, and like our first kind of like, you know, I, I had started talking to monkey paw about the idea back in like, like October of 2021 and then 2022 we were like in it Mac and I started it uh but like that was a pandemic baby like that that like and I mean if you think about it like 2020 to 20 the release being November 2022 like we had 2021 20, 22 like 
like almost like two and a half years to work on that thing from like inception to, you know, distribution to release. And uh, the first year, like the first, like first, like chunk was development. And then the next chunk was scripting. And then the, the longest chunk, the biggest chunk was just production. Um, and, you know, for that, for the first two sections of it, it was just Mac and me and Monkey Paw kind of off in our corner, like de de developing, mapping, refining, and then scripting. And then, you know, and then we came to Gimlet with 12 scripts and they... <laughs> You know, they read them and they were like, what? <laughs> like, where are we going with this? And it was, I mean, like, and to their credit, like, it is like, like, monkey paw kind of, and, and like, there was no, like, here's the thing. Nobody, like all, everybody in, in this process loved it. Like, loved the project, wanted to be in the project. We love, like, like, there was so much kind of, um, goodwill in the creation and development and production of this that like i i i'm 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 it will definitely be one of the kind of fundamental kind of positive experiences of my personal career and i and i think that that a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know jordan peele kind of fosters in, in these environments where like the people he gets involved really want to do, like they're just like we want to do this like this is sounds awesome like let's make something great um and 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 then they're we're just off to the races like it's it was wild and i feel like gimlet really gets the gold star because it's one thing for us for mac and me and monkey paw to be like we want we want to like create a sound parasite we want to create a monster that you can't see and like gets in your ears and it gets in your head and like Gimlet was like, okay, well, let's uh, like they had a team that we had like a couple, like there were like a handful of designers, sound designers, and they like that was their job. They like manifested these things that like that were so uh, conceptual and ethereal to us. And then you hand the scripts over, and then someone has to make sense of it. You know, like this is this is the kind of age old kind of special effects problem right it's like it's one thing to write it in a script it's totally different to like actually make it to render it and uh gimlet did that and that's mind-blowing and it turned out pretty good <laughs> yeah i'd say yeah um so okay which of these questions do i want to dive into first um i guess since you just mentioned gimlet let's do this um when you were writing the script for this there are lots and lots of kind of cool audible tricks built in here whether that is uh being able to hear the difference between rick talking into a tape recorder and rick sitting at his computer and like talking into the zoom uh or whether that's the trick of the kids are playing a video game and then all of a sudden like something in the background of the video games a little bit off yeah. um how many of those things did you try to write into the script for gimlet um a million, a million. Of okay, them. okay. And like, like, what, I, like, what were the script notes like? For <laughs> that, I guess is my question. Well, okay, we Mac really drove this home. I'm not, I'm not throwing Mac under the bus with this, but I think it was a rule. It was a rule that Mac wanted to, to do, and I think 
we stuck with it for the most part where it's this idea of like the fluidity like like i think with narrative podcasts there's always this like found footage vibe to it it's like you know i'm i'm the intrepid reporter and you can hear me talking into my you know that recorder and we're going you know I'm they're like audio blair witches and and at no like we wanted to be kind of conscious up front of uh there always being a kind of fluidity to the audio that you could always follow the sound source so like where the sound was coming from had to be something tangible like right. a phone a recorder a mic and a video game like there had to be something that was like that had a audible audio component sonic component to it so that this sonic parasite could be in the space um and mac was like we gotta like every like like the scripts up front were so precise like we wrote first drafts i think were like 30 page scripts uh you know somewhere in the drafting and the revising that boiled down to like 20 22 maybe 25 and then when gimlet kind of took over they compressed them even further into i'm mean like eight you know 15 to 18 minute tw like 20 minute max episodes because you just need to compress and compress and compress and um but for us we wrote what i would gather and i you may need to kind of someone else worth their salt and probably someone at gimlet would say otherwise but like we i feel as if we wrote very kind of hyper specific detailed uh scripts where it was it was basically like just follow the camera follow follow the kind of audio uh component so that every scene was either established or would establish a sonic component of some sort. Um, and we, we, we wanted that, we wanted to map it out. So like, you know, dialogue would be very, you know, there would be the dialogue in the scenes, but like, you know, the scripts themselves would read very uh, nuanced, I guess I should say they were nuanced scripts. Okay. Okay. Did I answer it? Kind of, yes. maybe yeah. sort of. Okay. Um, okay. So I've, I think I've got two questions left and then we'll start doing sign offs. Uh, we're oh, we're going to go with a heavy question. Then we'll come back to some levity. Okay. Um, yeah. These go quick. Um, uh, okay. Yammer, so yammer, yammer. The, I'm sorry, man. I feel like yeah. <laughs> the slightly heavier question and, and we can take a pass on this if we don't want to talk about it, but yeah, with quiet part loud. Um, I, I feel like it was a very, socially politically charged story yeah. put out at a time when we were very socially and politically charged um yeah. working with so many different like the production studio and with monkey paw and with everything else telling that story um were there a bunch of times that you were trying that that you found you needed to scale the commentary back a little bit to let the story shine <laughs> or the other way around were there times that you really wanted to push the needle like no we are doing the militia forming in texas and that like yeah. that is that is integral to this like how yeah what was the balance like for that or was that not even something that you considered was that just something that like this story needs this to breathe 
Um, well, I will say no one said no at any point. No one ever said, is this too much? Like, should we pull back? Like no one ever, no one ever told us we couldn't do what we wanted to do. Like if we wanted to do it, it was never like, well, I guess I shouldn't say no one said no. I mean, the oodles of times no one said, like there were plenty <laughs> things that like, were like, like a lot of ideas got shot down, but like no one said no about the the kind of discourse. And And I will say this, and I don't know if I've ever said this out loud and I hope I don't get in trouble with it, but like we wrote this before uh, the January 6th uh, in DC. Like, like it's, it's unfathomable. That is why. Now. <laughs> like this is, this is the thing. We were writing this pre all that. And, and I'm going to be fuzzy on the, the, the math. January, the, the January 6th riots, the January 6th insurgency, whatever you want to call January 6th. January 6th was 2021, 22, 22. When numbers, was, when numbers, was, numbers. I, I think that was 2020. No, couldn't have no. been 2020. No, no, 2021. 2021. Okay, January yeah. 6th, 2021. Because the election had happened and it was coming towards inauguration. Okay, so <laughs> imagine the, I mean, like, we had written the scripts for this, at least the first draft. Like that, they we were in it, like in a revision process before. And I remember one of the execs at Monkey Paw kind of on January six texting us <laughs> to be like, "Are you guys watching the news right now?" And it. We we all kind of were in our own little bubbles, our kind of quarantine bubbles, and we were watching it, and we were like, "Oh my god!" Like, in the and the thing that it dawned on me and dawned on everyone, and what we all kind of like spoke about was like, nothing we do, no one is ever going to believe that we wrote anything before. January 6th that like the stuff that happens at kind of the end with the militia and the kind of riot like like people yeah. are going to believe that that is an a response to January 6th where I swear to you I swear to you we had written that because they're like we got to end with a bang we got to go big like what's going to happen like like let's do like a riot yeah like because <laughs> because a lot of the summer before the summer proceeding with you know a lot of the, the protests that were happening around the country, like like protests and riots were kind of in the vernacular, but like, it was like, oh, let's flip it. Let's reverse it and have it like be this other thing. And, um, and then January 6th happened and we were like, oh, shit. <laughs> it was like, oh, fuck, man. Like, like someone got there first, but we wrote it first. Damn it. Um, so yeah. Total sidebar, but to your to answer your question, <laughs> um, no, <laughs> no. Okay. I mean, no, and and you know, I I think this is what I want to believe that horror is political. I want to mm. believe that people watch Night of the Living Dead, and whether they. It, it is broadcast or someone says it like on an innate intuitive level, they feel the politics of 
Night of the Living Dead, that it doesn't have to be broadcast in like big, bold, like, you know, and, you know, I, I think that like horror sci-fi doesn't have to be all, but like by its very nature, it is there to kind of disrupt a certain status quo and whether your status quo, it, like whether the complacency is like uh, your everyday normal existence versus like your, you know, like, I just feel like, like horror is a tool and the story that we wanted to tell, uh, evolved into what it is and like you know yeah i mean i could mouth off and i lord knows like about like how we came up with the ideas but like at the end of the day like it was it was a a response to the times that it was written in and produced in and developed in created in um but i mean what's scary is that's that's that shit hasn't gone away like it's still there so like I, you know, I haven't listened to it recently, but I'm curious, like, you know, listening to Quiet Part Loud today in 2024, like, how is that any different than in 2022? And, you know, for better or for worse, I wonder, I want, I'm asking if it's, if it's more relevant now than it was even a year ago, which is just nuts. It's just nuts. Ah. Or, or is political. That's what I'm going to say. Jason is is political. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Freddie's political. They're all political. Pinhead's political. Yeah, I'm, Pinhead. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a big subscriber to uh, to write what scares you and uh, to be able to think of something as terrifying as that and to know that it's tangible enough to be like plausible plausible enough that you can write it into a script and then to see it happen in real time. I can't imagine how I can't imagine those emotions. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, horror, I like I, we bludge, like we are not subtle about it whatsoever. And I, and I feel like I'll cop to that, but that was that, that I think that's fine. I think like horror, whether it's a film, a novel, a TV series, a podcast like the subtleties like horror can be political and not feel overt or bludgeoning or you know hitting the audience reader on the head and still feel like it elicits some sort of change or initiates some kind of response um but you know i i and i think the best horror does it and you're not even necessarily even aware of it of its you know and it's it's not a binary. It's not a right versus left or a you know, Democrat versus Republican. Like I think horror. Like we're just living in these charged times where like, you know, it's all it's all getting scarier and scarier. And like, yeah, I think we gotta write about that stuff. You know, and if you do, you know, whatever I I don't know whatever the messaging is behind it. Like it's still it's still scary. I think it's I don't know. I, I feel like there's something to be said about having those politics and still feeling all encompassing. That would be an interesting thing to do. Like what is a non-binary political horror? I don't know if it would exist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. 
I'll throw it on Twitter. I'm sure we'll get 300. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then ending on a lighter note, um, just all the readings you've done over the year, all of the stories that you've put out. um, Are there any, are there any readings that you've done that stood out to you as especially memorable that, that you have a story to tell about any, any readings that went so well or so not well, that would be fun to, (laughs) uh to revisit for a moment that's a good question i wish i had the like immediate like oh this is the one um i mean like (laughs) um i i've had a few like i i have this scar like i did this reading in charlotte north carolina at a bookstore and like i got really into the reading the reading and uh i like did a like a, a bad headbutt and like nicked my eyebrow on a, a corner of a bookshelf and like cut like just like burst open my eyebrow and it was like bleeding down and like I kept going for some reason <laughs> and this was like this was like 2003 and this was probably like to like five you know blue-haired women who like came into this bookstore on a you know Tuesday afternoon or whatever day it was and they were just mortified but I just couldn't stop for whatever reason and they were like they thought it was a part of the reading they thought it was like oh how did you do that and I was like <laughs> what are you talking about like that happened in real time um so that that you know I still have the scar too which I yeah so you, um, you've literally bled for this <laughs> <laughs> I mean I I love Okay, this is a this is a uh, this is a silly story. Um, I was in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 1998, and it was the same year that uh, um, we were. Perf- I was performing a set of stories uh, from my first book, and it was the same year that Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas uh, came out. The film version of it, directed by uh, Terry Gilliam, who I was a big fan of. Um, and I got to see a screening of it and then I got to see him do a talk back after. And I was doing the show that night after, and it was like, I mustered up the courage to, uh, go like, go up to Terry Gilliam after his event. And I had a postcard for my little event in this like little black box theater in, in Burrow. And, uh, he, he was like doing the whole like autographing and talking to fans. And I just waited and I waited and I waited them all out. I was the last fan there in 1998, you know, all however many years of me, I was a kid. I was a teen. I was a teenager. And uh, he, I finally go up to him and he's like, hello. And like, and I was like, hi, Mr. Gilliam. I'm a big fan of yours. And uh, um. And I invited him to the show. I was like, I don't know how long you're here for. I don't know if you have plans tonight, sir. But if you're free, you should come see my show because I really, really think that it will, um, you will like it. No, Being a fan of your work, I, I God, I probably said something really asinine. I was like, I, being a fan of your work, I think you might be a fan of mine. <laughs> something like really like, and and he was he was like oh okay this is really interesting like i don't like i have no idea 
how cordial he was being. And like, I'm sure he gets it all the time, but he was like really receptive to it. And he was like, well, I'm in town and I'm here with one of, it was like, I'm here with my son. Is it appropriate for kids? And I was like, oh, you know, probably <laughs> like how old's your kid? And he was like, I can't remember the age. It was like, maybe it was like nine, 11, something, something young ish, but not young, young, but like yeah. almost, you know? And I was like, you know what? He's 11. He, you could probably get away with it. He could probably, he would probably have a good time. It'd probably be fun. And he was, Terry Gilliam was like, all right, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll see you tonight. <laughs> and, and I left and like went to the venue. Like it was that night. I was like getting ready for the show and like the the Edinburgh Fringe Festival is this massive kind of performing arts festival where like comedians and theater troops and dancers and it's it's like all, just like the city of Edinburgh is just like taken over with art and I was doing this spoken word the the stupid stuff that I do like with baby carrots um, and but nobody knew who the fuck I was nobody cared about my stupid spoken word show in the middle of Edinburgh. And because uh, I was a kid, I was a kid doing this show. Um, and uh, I uh, like the doors open, the venue opens and nobody's there. And I was like, and, you know, like you're on this timetable. So it's like, you got to give it, you give it like five minutes and then you have to like make a call. Like, you know, do we start the show? Do we not do the show? Nobody. Like it was like the middle of the week. It was just absolutely dead. Nobody showed up for my show. It was heartbreaking. And I was like holding up the Vegas candle uh, for, you know, like maybe Tiffany Gilliam would show up. And uh, and and then enough time went by that we're like, fuck it. Let's let's call it. No one's going to show up. Let's just say like cancel the show. And um, there was some miscommunication because at a certain point, as I'm packing up my crap, someone showed up. And I don't know who it was. I have no idea. Um, but the box office manager came up to me as I was leaving the show. And they're like, oh, you didn't do the show tonight. And I was like, yeah, nobody showed up. You know, it was a real bummer. We just called it canceled. And the box office manager was like, well, this guy showed up with his kid. No. And and I was like, what do you mean? And I was like, this, this, old, this oldish guy. And I was like, kid came to see the show tonight and i was like what are you talking about and and i got really like scared i was like wait who was it and it was and the guy the box office manager was like i don't know just some dude and his kid and i was like was it terry gilliam and the box office manager had no idea who terry gilliam was and i was like you don't know who terry gilliam was and he's like no and i was like monty python adventures of baron munchausen brazil time bandits like you don't know who terry gilliam 12 monkey well this is no it was no it was after 12 Monkeys. it was like 12 like it was like you don't know who terry gilliam was and he was like i have no fucking clue who terry gilliam was <laughs> and and to this day to this day i have no idea if that was actually Terry Gilliam or not, but I swear to God, it had to be. Cause like, who else? Who, who else brings his kid to that? Who else brings his kid to the show other than the one that I invited to the fucking thing? <laughs> so I am, I have, I have regretted that ever since. That was like, that is one of the, the biggest regrets of my life. Uh, Almost performing to Terry Gilliam. 
sad sad story no you asked for light and i gave you sad <laughs> well right. like, this has been amazing i love talking to you so much um if you could um go ahead and uh remind our listeners just one more time about who you are and do you have any new books coming out that we should be on the lookout for or do you want to plug what kind of mother again uh yeah what kind of mother that's a book um ghost theaters is a book um i have i think i have a new book that's coming out in october but i can't talk about it yet i'm just waiting for edits um but uh like that that is on the horizon um but yeah quiet part loud let's do that what kind of mother ghost eaters but what quiet part loud let's give that a spin see if it floats your boat cheers <laughs> thank you again so 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 much for coming on here um listeners thank you for joining us i hope you had as much fun as i did and before you go please don't forget to like subscribe or get ensnared in the web of sonic sounds spun by your streaming service of choice uh, and stay spooky Barn has tied bells to everybody in the morgue so if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go.